did some pre-research because not having seen tonight's episode of The Saint before, I noticed IMDb said it bears a striking resemblance, as in there's a mention of voodoo, to an episode of Danger Man. There's a mention of voodoo in nearly every ITC show at some point. It does seem the go-to um, kind of pagan belief almost uh, for to, to give it a bit of an exotic touch, to hear some bongo beats, to have a lot of sweat on people's faces. So yeah, it's it's a popular one. That's the sort of thing that gives a lot of work to people who would not otherwise be cast in the sixties. Yeah, um, so it's possible that maybe people like Earl Cameron or uh, or even a young Oscar James turning up in that. Yes, there are quite a few, including the same dancer. Oh right, okay. Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show. One of the reasons why we have been a bit delayed is that His Majesty's Government asked us to refrain from recording until after the coronation in case we gave away inadvertently some details of security. So um, we've done our duty and we've waited, which means that in this episode we'll be talking about two saints, uh, the inescapable word and the sign of the claw and tomorrow we will be recording and talking about three different episodes because there's another one tonight which dave has to have to swat up on yeah <laughs> indeed yeah sat in yeah sat in front of me tv with me with me notepad or actually no it's me it's me file cards isn't it that's that's what i actually do <laughs> so if you're new to the show this is rose tinted black and white television where we examine the black and white episodes of television that flickered across the TV screens of Britain between 1956, The Suez Crisis, and 1974, The Three-Day Week. And the spine on which all this hangs is The Saint. We're now in pretty well through series three of The Black and White Saints. And we have two Terry Nation episodes, as it turns out. The Inescapable Word, which is, I think it's fair to say that's science fiction, isn't it? It's sky fi, yes. Maybe Mr. Nation's sky fi influences have, have come to the fore. We really um, must do something about Terry Nation, you know, an entire programme about Terry so, Nation. Yeah, I don't think it can be stopped now. It's too late. Um, his influence is already out there. A huge influence, but people may be surprised to learn that actually he didn't just write science fiction. Um, he obviously wrote four shows like the ITC and the Avengers, of course, but also he did quite a lot of comedy and has left a huge mark in a relatively short life, I think. Big legacy and still resonating today through um, the modern era of Doctor Who, because where would Doctor Who be without those Daleks? It would be nowhere. It would have died in its um, birth pangs. Right, so we have the first episode, and it's everybody's favourite location, the remote Scottish research base, we have spoken before about our remote research stations ever up to any good. The answer is no. <laughs> there um, you go. And usually they're surrounded by chain link fences and there are mm. people patrolling with Alsatians, usually in uniform. They're not wearing helmets this time. That tends to be an mm. Avengers thing. These are people who look a bit like uh, 
cinema commissionaires, it has to be said. Anyway, the title of the episode is The Inescapable Word, which is not really describing what it says on the tin. So we start off with the saint explaining his rather ambivalent attitude to country sports, because we know he's a big fisherman, mm. but he's mm. not so keen on the hunting and shooting. As he explained in the elusive Elshaw, the English, those that can afford it, that is, are absolutely mad about shooting and hunting. They have a language of their very own. Mark over, my bird, sir, your bird, sir, gone away, tally-ho. The outsiders are either envious or contemptuous, like Oscar Wilde, who once described them as the unspeakable in pursuit of the uneatable. Next weekend, I am joining the unspeakables myself. And of course, in the inescapable word, he really does seem to be on the side of the grouse. It's all very strange. For most of the year, we feed and coddle our game birds, protect them from predators, defend them from the poachers. Then on the morning of August the 12th, we get out our guns and we see how many of them we can kill. Simon! Ah, Marge. Look out! I missed. These grass are cunning, you know, they uh, duck. I don't think you're trying. You haven't made a kill all day. Well, the truth is, I'm not a very expert marksman. Oh, come on. Surely no one can ever say that about the famous Simon Templar. So, he's up on some Scottish country estate, and I think this is the one where he's really just running into trouble, isn't he, Dave? Yeah, he doesn't appear to have gone on a trouble holiday, almost like booking an Airbnb trouble getaway, either in a large city or, um, as we, we kind of find out in the in the next episode, the sign of the claw, that is a Airbnb villainy getaway kind of holiday. So, yes, this is one of those um, stumbling across things. And he's on the Scottish moors. He's been invited up there. And he's not 100% behind the good hunting. It all seems to stem from a missing dog called Sinbad, um, who is very precious to um, Anne Bell, who's playing Marjorie North, um, kind of like the Laird's daughter. And she's worried about what's happened to, to Sinbad. And she's so worried about what's happened to Sinbad, she sent a servant out to, to try and track it down. But then it turns out something happens to the servant. And whilst Simon Templar is out uh, on them, the lonely foggy moors, or rather the lonely foggy Scottish moorland set that they've recreated, he hears a strange science fiction type noise. He sees a strange glowing science fiction type light and something which melts trees. And in the plot description for it, it's described as a death ray. Um, and indeed, I think it probably is a death ray because it can melt trees. He manages to avoid this. He sees someone in like a big boiler suit type and mask uh, um, using this death ray thing. Um, and the the poor unfortunate gamekeeper who's, who's been sent out to look for Sinbad um, is found dead in kind of like a, a, a hollow. Sinbad's found. That's okay. Sinbad's found. Should point out, I wasn't impressed with Sinbad's acting. 
I didn't think Sinbad was a particularly good dog actor, and maybe they need a more tougher auditions process for when it comes to to dogs. But the thing that's noticed um, about the death of this this gamekeeper is, wait a minute, is the way in which he's died. The entire skeletal structure seems to have calcified. The bones have become brittle. I'll know more in the morning when I make a detailed examination. I know of nothing in the world that could cause injuries such as those. All seems to be a little bit mysterious. Um, meanwhile, back at the Laird's house, um, Simon, um, the Laird, his daughter, Annabelle, and the other guests, or suspects as we call them in the game, are seemingly hiding something. Something is obviously going on. Something uh, is not particularly going well. No, and I think the reason why we know that <clears throat> is that Simon, while he's been searching and looked at the melted tree, he has sustained a head injury. Oh, by the way, uh, is Mr. Templer all right? I think so, sir. He's just changing. Good. What's happened? Well, he didn't go into details, but from what he said, I imagine he ran into a pluter. Fellow attacked him. Really? Was he hurt? Oh, got a nasty bump on the back of his head. Ah, oh, Simon. What you need is a drink. Now, I don't know whether you saw this, Dave, recently. This is the sort of thing that wouldn't happen nowadays because under new guidance about concussion and head injuries, it says, what is concussion? Concussion is a traumatic brain injury affecting mental function can alter the way someone thinks, feels and remembers things. Effects are usually temporary and most people are covered fully with rest. But there are red flags, including losing consciousness. Now, but isn't that what happens to Simon? Well, yes. And for 24 hours after being removed from the game, the new guidance says the injured player must not be left alone, mm -hmm. drink alcohol, or drive a car. Oh, right. Wait a minute. Let's, let's go through that list again. Check, check, check. Simon does all of those. Yes. He's a um, terrible patient. <laughs> And, of course, this happens on a regular basis. So I'd hate to think what Simon's health in his old age might turn out to be. But, obviously, people were slightly more cavalier about personal injury in the 1960s. Yeah, you just shake it off. That is exactly what Simon does. So he continues his investigation because he thinks something is, is going on wrong um, at the re sinister Scottish Research Facility. The other guests, like I said, Professor Oakridge and Professor Soren um, and Professor Rams, uh, they don't seem to be presenting a united front. One of them seems to have, have worried that maybe with this research they've overstepped to the mark a little bit. Um, and indeed, they do appear to have done that with this sinister death ray that they speak of. And then there's kind of like a lot of running around, isn't there, from the, 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 the sinister base, which has like an electrified fence um, and, like you said, guards, um, back to the Laird's house. So there's a lot of toing and froing. And the Laird is the chief constable, isn't he? Mm, yes, yeah. Simon, I've got to go out tonight. I'd be grateful if you'll come with me. Why, what's happened? There's been a murder out at the research station. <laughs> Chief Constable of the county, I don't come under the security restrictions that govern the research station. Simon, this place is ultra top secret. 
My men have no jurisdiction inside until the ministry gives its approval. Quite frankly, I don't relish the idea of standing outside the fence while you investigate. When Ingram called, he particularly asked that I bring you. Probably highly irregular. But then, so is murder. They say that it's unconventional for Simon Templer to be asked along to help investigate a murder at a remote top-secret Scottish research station. Well, Claude Eustace Teal seems to give him carte blanche to be able to sit in on police interviews and, and indeed team briefings down in Scotland Yard. Well, for someone who is so notorious... Mm, infamous. ...and various other adjectives, it seems quite remarkable that the police decide to call on his expertise... Because, I mean, it's not even off the books, is it? I mean, they might as well sign him up. I would imagine maybe there's an edited out scene where he's sworn in to be part of, like, the local constabulary, that he has to swear allegiance to the Highlands and Islands Police Service. But then he gets to poke around, doesn't he? He does get um, a chance to poke around. It always amazes me. Again, We've this is one of our favourite tropes, when people are either looking around offices or places that they've either broken into or they have entered via stealth what are they actually looking for is there a big document that says guilty we done it you know it when you find it yes yeah oh that's why i was like oh oh where's my keys but then there's the first or also I suppose the second of more murders we've already had the poor old uh, um gamekeeper kind of like killed and now we have fascinating murder because it appears that the, the murder victim has written the word cop as a big clue in his own to, blood i think yes as to who may have murdered him and that obviously puts the head of security of um, the secret sinister scottish moorland base kind of in the crosshairs then mm. Mm. and he is a bit twitchy he is yeah, he's he's worried that, oh, wait a minute, this sounds like this is a primitive attempt to try and frame me. And there is a room that Simon wants to get into, isn't there? Yes, yeah, that's the, the room which may hold all the answers and indeed contain one of those documents that says, guilty, we done it, uh, or explain in layman's terms what this sinister death ray may be about. Mm. Now, there's something... It's quite similar because we've got the frightened innkeeper coming up. Yes, has, yeah. Which has a very similar geography. Yes, it is, again, kind of a remotely placed hotel. And there's and it, something suspicious in the cellar. Yes, and it's down to the plucky daughter to try and help out. Who, incidentally, I mean, both the heroines in The Inescapable Word and The Frightened Innkeeper are blonde in their mid-twenties. I guess they're about five foot six. But there's kind of a similar setup. There's a secret entrance to some tunnels without too much of a spoiler. Uh, Dave, how do you hide the entrance to your secret tunnels? Uh, I usually uh, will put uh, um, an armchair, usually sometimes in, in front of it, or uh, I have some lovely decorative fold-together screens that I used to store in my theatre dressing rooms. Although alternatively, in other episodes of The Saint, we've seen um, barrels 
sometimes used. We've seen stacked crates of wine or beer to be able to do that. So it's it's kind of using an item which doesn't necessarily despoil the ambience of the room. Yeah, if you're in a laboratory, it's probably racks of chemicals and stuff. Yes, yeah, uh, um, sh- you know, rack rack shelving. Um, and like I said, it's it's kind of each identifiable to the room you're in. So so for my hidden passageway in my front room, it would be insane to have a wine rack because people would just say, Dave, that's out of place in your in your front room. And you know what? They they wouldn't be far wrong. However, my shelving unit, which contains books and DVDs, fits neatly in. See, problem solved. Yes. There's a lot of toing and froing and bell. And Belle's character um, actually gets quite a lot to do, and she's under a bit of threat, and she's not entirely helpless, it has to be said. But, no, she's resourceful. And the saint dispatches her to the library, the public library, to do some research, and but then she's kind of intercepted, and there's an assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. And luckily, in the fog, the saint has managed to find her in the tunnel and foil that and then they have to go to the remote scottish research station and assemble everyone in a laboratory because they haven't got a yeah all the all the kind of like professors or the security people that they've that it's oh well at least the ones who aren't already dead and it's cluedo with test tubes (laughs) it it really is (laughs) um and then the saint points out because he has a smattering of the Russian alphabet but he wanted to be sure and because the stabbed scientist murder victim has reverted to his native language when writing the killer's name in his own blood on the floor and it's what a but it's a it's a pretty good guess for Simon actually that that might be what happened so it's not cop it's, I think, was it Sorensen? Is it is the C stand for an S? Oh, right, yes, how it's spelt out. Yes, so they confront Sorensen, who has the opportunity to do his crazed scientist speech. I've created a weapon that can change the world. It destroys all life, but leaves no trace of radiation. The classic death ray. No matter what you do, we'll find you. I've already made the phone call. And within hours, I shall be out of this country to a government that will pay me millions. Ah, uh, if you are a professor, if you are a scientist, and you are given the opportunity to relay one of those speeches, just do it. You know, go for it. It's a lovely party piece at the Works Christmas Party. Oh, sorry, at the Sinister Research Centre's Christmas Party. You'll get a cheer. Particularly because it's about funding again. And it usually is about oh. funding, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I haven't got enough money for my death, Ray. What are you going to do? Yes, I'm going to get a lot of money from someone. I'm not going to waste it by going to Monte Carlo. I'm going to continue (laughs) my sinister weapon of mass destruction research. So there's a bit of argy-bargy. He escapes into the tunnels, pursued by Simon, and gets his death ray out.
there's a problem with this and you can tell that it's a prototype if, it's a, if it was a hedge trimmer it would cut out immediately if you let go of the handle yes it would yes yeah and he drops it and stands in front of it again i you know what i can see a court case coming out of this <laughs> he is carbonized it is yes because everyone ends up with calcified bones don't they their bones get reduced almost to to burnt carbon within them which is one of the, the the horrible things which is a side effect of the death ray good god what a ghastly machine there's not much left of it i'm happy to report perhaps that's just as well i think so of course simon takes the executive decision that he's not interested in the millions of pounds that a foreign government might pay him for this he just takes a hammer to it so <laughs> simon saves the world yeah with a hammer which he you know probably got from juicens or someplace like that so yeah and then we're out basically mm, that's it like i said i'm not quite sure where the inescapable word comes comes into it like you said it's it's a difficult title to shoehorn into the action and activity we see yes i presume the inescapable word might have been written in blood on the floor but ah, it, cock. but was in russian it could have escaped i suppose had simon not been an international man of mystery and was mm. able to think out of the box yeah knows his languages yes everyone can sleep safely in their beds there will be more science fiction later on again with secret doors in laboratories which lead to tunnels and possibly giant ants <gasps> keep looking so looking forward to the giant ants yes it's some way off because they're in color oh. let's look who's in it Anne bell she has one studio avengers point she guested in the sentimental agent gideon of the yard the baron danger man the troubleshooters callan department desk Hein, which is about a British arms salesman, and she was a storyteller on Jack and Ori. But, but she's probably best known for 30 episodes of Tenko. We have somebody in the next episode who was in Tenko quite a lot. <laughs> oh, oh, let, oh, don't let the cat out of the bag just yet. James Maxwell, uh, he would swear, was quintessentially English in a rather louche manner, but he was in fact American. <gasps> He has two Avengers points, plus he filled in as Steed during a screen test to find Diana Rigg's successor. There's a clip of one of them on YouTube, which I will put in the show notes. It doesn't have any dialogue left, so they put some music across it. Uh, he's with Diane Clare, who the title card says is five foot six. Is Diane Clare the lady from Plague of the Zombies? I think she might be, yes. She was in her 20s and blonde, so maybe it's not just a saint thing. Maybe it's an industry yeah. thing. James Maxwell also guested in Danger Man, Maygrave, The Troubleshooters, The Champions. Loads of single plays. Was probably best known for playing Henry VII in all 13 episodes of The Shadow of the Tower in 1972, all of which makes him a star. Morris Headley, 69 credits, one point from the studio days. A for Andromeda and its sequel. Gideon's Way, Sergeant Cork, Human Jungle, Adam Adamant. Uh, his last screen appearance was in Randall and Hopkirk. <gasps> Canadian, Robert McLeod, Two Saints, Man in a Suitcase, Adam Adamant, 74 episodes of Emergency Ward 10. Robert Dean from Kent, 27 credits and one point. Ronald Ibbs from Middlesex, second of Three Saints, 
Elsewhere, Moonstrike, The Plane Makers and Out of the Unknown. Donald Bissett, 114 screen credits right up to 1991, including Doctor Who, The Beverly Hillbillies and The Troubleshooters. Wow. Now, James Copeland, one Avengers point and a fixture on British television, particularly the output emanating from or related to Scotland. Uh, nine episodes of Dr. Finley, two versions of Kidnapped, three of Red Gauntlet, one of Red Roy, 35 episodes of The Flying Doctor in 1959, um, and in 1966's Ransom for a Pretty Girl, one of those thrillers set in the Scottish Highlands that was so popular in the 60s and 70s, he got to act with his son. Care to guess who that is, Dave? All right, so the gent's name is James Copeland. Um, right, I'm trying to think of an actor that may have that surname. No, you're going to have to fill us in on this one. Well, it's not the same surname. Yeah. James Cosmo. That has the hulking James Cosmo. That's right. I mean, you know, a star in his own right, who has won Avengers Next Generation Point. All right. So, Crikey. So almost anything, the Avengers legacy continues where people like uh, James Cosmo or Rachel Sterling mm -hmm. and others appear. That was a nice family touch. Russell Waters, two points, as well as The Champions, Crane, Human Jungle, and No Hiding Place. And in the uncredited department, Anthony Baird, two studio Avengers, uh, Randall and Hopkirk, Danger Man, Human Jungle, amongst others. Roy Beck, two points, 13 Saints, appearances elsewhere. Philip Johns, three points, six Saints, four Danger Mans, and many others. Alf Mangan, third appearance in Series 3, and one to come in Series 5. Terence Mountain, the first of seven saints, but one point. Terry Mountain. That's a great name, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think he he played a lot of heavies. Um, <laughs> and I believe crops up again in The Frightened Innkeeper as uh, an unfortunate medical orderly. Oh, dear. And Paul Weston, who is an astonishing 30 Avengers points. How, you ask? How? How, I ask? He doubled for Patrick McNee in Stunts and Driving, and he's listed as acting in seven of them. Ah, right, OK. So, in his own way, he is an Avengers fixture. And, of course, because of his stunt duties, he's been in numerous Bond and Star Wars movies and apparently is still working. So, he'd be one of those people you'd probably see signing autographs at events. I, I would hope so. Yeah. Because you wouldn't want that kind of uh, track record to, uh, to be hidden under a bushel. Mm. So that wraps up the inescapable word. I mean, we, we have talked about this uh, in the past, but the, um, the Scottish thriller in the Highlands, which kind of does go all the way back to Robert Louis Stevenson and... Yeah, um, kidnapped, yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, through John Buchan. Yeah. You know, with 39 Steps and the Gorble diehards. If you've got the scenery, why not make the most of it? I don't know which are worse remote Scottish research centres or privately owned islands in the Caribbean yeah. or the Pacific. Either of those. Yeah, neither of them are up to any good, are they? No, right. not to be trusted. <laughs> right, so that was Terry Nation doing what he does best, I think, it's fair to say. He has another go immediately in The Sign of the Claw. Now, this is set in the Far East, so 
I wonder if there'll be any East Asian actors in it. Oh, I hope so. And the first person we see is Bert. <laughs> I used to be in Tanko, you know. Yay, it's Bert Quark. Uh, not just a star, but an icon. However, he's, he's not the only actor of East Asian background in this. There were plenty of them around in the 60s, possibly more than on 80s TV. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if we need to summarise this, because this is basically like Zulu or Fort Apache with several sieges. Yeah, it, I mean, I suppose one of the interesting things is, you know, we've, we've already concluded that to give it a marvellous international appeal and almost sense of neutrality that within the ITC canon, they don't necessarily have, you know, the idea of, of topicality. But this, this episode does seem to lean towards a little bit the troubles that may have been extending in, like you said, the Far East, whether that was through Malaya, whether that was through Indonesia, you know, that idea of there's something going on over there. That's right. And apparently stirred up by, well, not to put it too bluntly, Red China. Yes. Yeah. Let's give it a name. Personified by Bert. <laughs> yes. So we are, we are in um, Southeast Asia or rather um, the best studio approximation of Southeast Asia. And uh, Simon appears to be on a uh, very relaxing holiday, which allows him to break out his, his safari suit. And he is dining at a plantation, which is run um, by Don Morland, um, who lives there with his daughter, Jean. But all of a sudden, there is um, an attack um, by insurgents or terrorists or whatever they may wish to be called as a very vicious gun battle and as someone has pointed out um because it's very very rarely happens in which simon does a fair amount of killing mm. oh, does he knows how to use um, automatic weapons doesn't he yeah he, i think he only stops killing when he runs out of ammo uh it almost seems to to be that way and at first we think that there's 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 sort of like a land grab going on because Mr. Morland has been approached by his neighbor to say, hey, why don't you sell me your plantation? And he says, oh, no, I want to keep my plantation. And his neighbor says, well, why don't you think about selling me your your plantation? And he, he's not having it. He's not having it. But then and, and it, you know, this is a very familiar saint trope, you know, where he he comes to the assistance of of people who appear to be in in dire need from villains right it almost plays like shane in some ways but then we we get told that simon isn't just happenstance being there that he is on the trail of an international criminal genius the evil dr julius um and it appears that who else but Dr. Julius is behind this proposed land grab. So yeah. it becomes not just a case of, of saving the Moreland family, not just a case of um, getting rid of those insurgents, but also settling the hash of Dr. Julius as well. Because this is a saint trope that we haven't had time for, basically, because we've just gone straight into the action. 
Dr. Julius has been responsible for the death of someone in Tokyo, I think it is. Uh, yes, a, yeah. A, um, a friend of Simon's. I will admit, I don't think we've, we've come across Dr. Julius before in the series. So Simon has to fill us in a little bit, does a little bit of exposition. What he's responsible for. Simon, you still haven't told me what you're doing here. Looking for someone. A month ago, he was in the Congo. Before he left, the fighting had started again. Before that, he was in Vietnam. Shortly after his arrival there, they started the big terrorist offensive. Now he's here. At the moment he calls himself Julius, but he uses a dozen different names, has a dozen different nationalities and passports to go with them. I've never even seen him. But I'll know him when I do. And he'll know me. And so, yeah, it becomes kind of like a personal vendetta rather than, um, you know, Shane. It uh, um, kind of like spins on spins on from there so simon has his work cut out for him rounding up burke quook and his his cronies um getting dr julius uh bringing him to book um but also he's kind of hindered by some characters who appear loyal to the morelands but then turn the tables on them how dare they Oh, yes, the, the, the turncoat estate manager or whatever it is. Yes, the, the lovely family retainer <laughs> who up until that point has appeared to be um, a paragon of trust. But then you just go, oh, wait a minute, no. And you know what? What's really terrible is when he does reveal that he's betrayed them, he laughs when he does it. Yes, uh, uh, quite a, a sinister, unnerving laugh, that that is. Now... Dave, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but we've got several sieges and they end up, Simon, you mentioned the safari suit. It's actually very well tailored and fitted and he's wearing a scarf in, you know, it's not the usual slightly baggy safari suit. He, no, he is, he is a dapper gent in the jungle. He really is. But he and the Morelands are being held hostage in... It's not a cellar, it's an enclosed room. So how many times does someone else save Simon Templar's life? Because, and I have bullet points here, the manservant right at the opening literally takes the bullet for him in the first couple of minutes. He does, he just stumbles in the way before they've before they've opened up and then there's then there's loads of gunplay then uh he's also um there's also an intervention during the gunplay isn't there yeah 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 there uh, there's the loyal plantation worker not the turncoat uh, <laughs> the loyal plantation worker who comes to his rescue when the man with the claw gets the drop on the saint yes and, and this is the claw that killed mr morland's brother yeah and it was all passed up, meant to be passed off as a tiger attack, but uh, apparently yes. it wasn't. It was somebody with a rake. <laughs> and finally, just as Dr. Julius, I think, is about to throw a hand grenade into the locked room, not a cellar, where the saint and the besieged colonials in prison, the army major appears and shoots him with a sterling submachine gun. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the good thing is the army the british army in this case um seem to be there at the drop of a hat you know they put through an emergency call that helicopter takes off all those troops on board and yeah their timing is imp 
impeccable. There's a lot of stock footage of Wessex helicopters, isn't there? <laughs> Our favourite military helicopters. I'm, I'm surprised Paddy Ashdown didn't appear because it's <laughs> it was his period, wasn't it? There's um, special boat squadron, I think it was, mm. he was in. All in all, I'd have to say that Mr Templar has used up a lot of lives and I'd have to mark him down very severely on his personal security. You know, but he, you know, he does suffer a lot of that. He has a disturbed dinner. Mm. You know, it's one of those things where you just think, crikey, no one's going to eat now for the rest of this episode. They're going to be starving um, at the end. All this running around, because the last meal they sat down to got interrupted by a load of Bren gun fire. Maybe the kind of like the personal vendetta plot doesn't work as as well, but that gives, I suppose, more impetus and justification for um, Simon's rage and maybe his recklessness as well. Quite possibly, because he may have been distracted from his usual caution. <laughs> yes, his yeah, where you know he he wouldn't go anywhere on his own and just walk into a villain's lair. Well, that's not like him. No. Um... He goes and explores what I presume is the temple because it's got lots of statues of Buddha. And then he discovers uh, that, that it's all linked up to a generator. And the final plot twist is that he rearranges the landing lights so that the red general who's flying in to organise everything crashes into a hillside. Oh, I won't do that again. Um, yeah, and, and Bert Quook and the boys are just baffled as to how that has happened. Yeah. Yeah, um, but um, as the saint points out, there are no original ideas. He read it in an adventure story. <laughs> well done, Simon. And he must do a lot of reading because he does compare um, one of the characters to Simon Legree um, from Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, right. Yeah, so we, we do forget that uh, um, sometimes that Simon must be very well read. Yeah, well, he does spend a lot of time on international jet flights yes so yeah you do a lot of reading no in-flight films then i don't know if they had flight socks in those days or whether he did exercises to stop uh dvts or anything i suppose actually if you want to uh, stop blood clots you just keep drinking alcohol keep drinking and smoking um yeah but certainly no in-flight films during the 50s and 60s when widescreen cinema was at it at its forefront um they'd have to show it kind of width ways wouldn't they they'd have to show it one along one side of the fuselage yeah. for it to fit in they wouldn't be able to they wouldn't be able to show it in kind of like at the end of end of the aisle because if you're watching something in cinerama it's not going to fit in no but you get a crick in your neck wouldn't you you would you would because you'd have your your head turned like that to watch it the full and those people right by the screen oh they'd have a hell of a time yeah, that'd be like being on the front row, wouldn't it? It's just be <laughs> terrible experience. Too overwhelming. Terrible experience. Yeah. Oh, what what are we watching? Oh, it's Ice Station Zebra. Oh, crikey. We can only see a small part of it. <laughs> it's snow. It's white. <laughs> That's all. Um, right, who's in it? Um, Susan Farmer, last seen in the Latin Touch uh, in Series 1. Uh, blonde, 20s. No word on her height. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to guess that. Two more saints to come. Peter Copley, a stalwart with 203 credits, including two, aye, aye, aye. 
including two and a half Avengers points, uh, and a career stretching from 1934 to 2008. He was in everything. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he's one of those. Um, it must have just been on speed dial for a lot of TV shows. I think I seem to... Was he in a series called... Was he in General Hospital? Or is that another actor I'm thinking of? Um, I, haven't, um, I haven't got room for his full CV here. Um, um, but he's in Quatermass in the Pit. Mm. Uh he knows in um, he's in Help, the Beatles film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's yeah he's done a um, a fair amount. Godfrey Quigley, three points, four Saints, one Sergeant Cork, six episodes of Contract to Kill. Any guesses about what that's about? Right, that sounds like um, an exterminator who works for a. Uh, extermination company that gets rid of vermin and bugs and the like um and he is in ruthless competition with his brother who also runs a similar business with hilarious consequences yeah yeah that'd be my bet apparently it could be a former secret service agent turned private detective is hired to turn nazi hunter and it would be well, yeah i guess yeah yeah you could do that as well i guess it would be packed with familiar faces if any episodes were still around. Oh, oh in that case, then we can go down the rival exterminators route. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that would probably um, find an audience today. Jeffrey Frederick, uh, regular work in the 60s, but not as much as I thought when I looked him up. Leo Layden, uh, the evil Dr. Julius. Mm-hmm. Born in Dublin. Uh, one more saint to come. How old would you say he was, Dave? What in the series in the in, in, in the this se- episode? Yeah. In this episode, I'm going to say 61 because he does look a bit old and and not necessarily an action villain. He's in his mid 30s. Oh God's holy trousers! He must have had a hard life. And he went to the work in the states later on. Apparently, now Kenjin Takari, who played the treacherous Angkor, this is ah. this is his only TV screen credit. Oh wow! So, you know, that uh, sinister laugh is a rarity. But you know what? He seemed like such a familiar face. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't understand why I hadn't seen him before. I think he, he's he got one more appearance in a feature film. Okay. But according but to yeah, he, he, he seemed like a very, you know, a very, very familiar face. I know you said earlier, perhaps because of the, or the small number of, um, Asiatic actors that may have been available, I suppose. Um, same with 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 actors of colour. You you kind of got to see those those reassuring, familiar presence. Mm. Um, um, and there's one in this where um, I know he's uncredited, um, but the pilot of the doomed plane um, is is Anthony Chin, who some of us may recognise um, from films as big as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, Let Element Sonk, uh, the Fifth Element, or indeed Hammer's Abominable Snowman. Yes. Well, we'll come to uh, Anthony Chin, but the next person who we've already referred to. Oh, go on, tell us. Bert Kwok, who was. Who I always thought was from Shanghai. Now, he grew up there from the age of 11 months. Do you know where he was born? 
Um, oh, let's. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go out on a on a on a limb here and say Brisbane. No, Warrington. Oh, which is near Brisbane, isn't it? My geography's not good. Warrington, uh, it's uh, not quite Greater Manchester. I think it's halfway. Back. <laughs> it's, oh. I think comes up. Did it still come under Cheshire? I think. It's halfway between Manchester and Liverpool, so it's a it's a score draw. <laughs> yeah, I thought what some mistake surely. Uh, apparently, in 1930, I think it was his parents were on holiday in Europe at the time, but they took him back to Shanghai at the age of 11 months. So, what can you say? He always said he was Chinese, but he obviously came back. I think he studied, did some law studies in Hong Kong. Um, mm. because after the communist takeover, the, the family fled. Uh, and then he winds up in, I think, his first screen appearances in, in Of The Six Happiness. And he's immediately identifiable there and instantly recognisable, a skilled character actor as well as possessing immaculate comic timing. And he was also extremely good-looking. I think he would have made an excellent Doctor Who in the late 60s. Yes, yeah, um, and uh, there was one of his films on the other week, actually. Luc Besson produced uh, the Kiss of the Kiss of the Dragon. I think it is. Is it Kiss of the Dragon with um, uh, Jet Li and Bridget Fonda? Oh right. Well, Bert Kwok must have been at the top of everyone's speed dial. I would. Mm. And of course, he worked all the way up and became a fixture in Last of the Summer Wine. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, and of course, he has Avengers points and as well as appearing in The Saint, basically as the incarnation of the red communist threat from the Far East. Mm. Um, a role he has done many times before. Yes. Um, such as uh, in the big budget, um, Shoes of the Fisherman. Oh, right. Very good. Um, and, of course, he's in the pilot of the champions because he's the <laughs> man leading the patrol trying to hunt the champions down in Tibet. John Rhys, born in Wales, uh, 98 credits, appeared in almost everything except the Avengers. Um <laughs> Although he is used to is used to sweating it out in the jungle because he appears in the long and the short and the tall. Oh right, so um, he had his own glycerin. Yes, yeah, and bush hat. Um, Christopher Cum, uh, K U M, born in Singapore, one and a half points, uh, mogul, that's troubleshooters basically, uh, Danger Man, Doctor Who, and five episodes of Gangsters in the 1970s. Do you remember that? Gangsters was that Morris Colburn, and yeah. it was shot in Birmingham. That's right, yes, and got terribly self-referential and postmodern in the last few episodes, I seem to remember. Yeah, it, it was quite interesting. I think the writer turned up uh, impersonating W.C. Fields. <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I had glandular fever around about that time. It could just have been. <laughs> yeah. A, a may, maybe, maybe, yeah. I need to check it. Um, Michael Chow, born in China uh, in the 60s. He had an appearance in The Prisoner and The Baron, amongst others. Uh, Cecil Cheng, One Point, which was a Tara King and several other ITC shows, and also Adam Adamant. And finally, Anthony Chin, who hey. was. 
surprisingly born in Georgetown, Guyana. 77 credits, uh, a familiar face in the 60s, uh, Danger Man, Two Saints, The Champions, The Troubleshooters, Moonbase 3, uh, where he played the commander of the Chinese base, I think. Uh, and of course, 13 episodes of The Protectors as trusted chauffeur Chino. But of course, he has one Avengers point with the eerie room without a view. Ooh. Also, in, he's in a few bombs as well. Um, so, yeah, during the 60s, you know, a lot of, lot of big hits yeah. under his belt. I'm quite surprised he, he didn't get uh, as many big speaking parts as... Uh, well, yeah, like I said, by, by that point, he was, you know, the early 60s, he was a familiar face. Mm. Um, and there is, I think it's an Edgar Wallace feature film if you can call it that, it's only about 65 minutes that they occasionally show on Talking Pictures, starring Patrick Allen, uh, called The Sinister Man. And that has a lot of stuff about a communist East Asian uh, state. Um, and I remember tuning into that and seeing a lot of actors that I thought, oh yeah, they look slightly familiar. I thought, but where's Bert? And then suddenly Bert yeah. turns up because he's from the embassy, and so he comes in to steal the show right at the end. Yeah, so that, I think Terry Nation's done better work, uh, to be honest. It's quite interesting about the evil colonial planter who is siding with the communists. Um, yes, yeah. And he's seems to have misunderstood worldwide communist revolution. <laughs> I'm not going to have any little jumped-up officials telling me what to do. I'll smash this government by any means that I can find. And you think the rebel government will treat you any better? Yes. When they gain power, I'll see to it that I live in the way that I was used to. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. Yeah, he, he foolishly thinks he has them in his pocket where they have him in theirs. Previous to that colonial anti-independence rant, um, I spotted one of those 60s racist epithets, which, although it's in the mouth of a repulsive colonial and the saint argues basically the liberation point of view, that people should be entitled to run their own countries, it really brings you up short. And nowadays it'd be unacceptable. I mean... I didn't spot the Talking Pictures TV advisory at the beginning, did you? Oh, no, no. Uh, I mean, they usually have a blanket one, don't they, just to be on the safe side? Yeah, there, there wasn't any kind of reference to attitudes and language that I saw, but it was one of those things that people would object to in 40 Towers, and John Cleese would get very exercised about the freedom mm. of speech. And it would also be something that probably uh, Johnny Spate might well have put in the mouth of Alf Garnet on numerous occasions, which is why it's not necessarily on a mainstream channel, etc. But let's talk about Bert a bit more. Um, here's a clip on being famous, essentially. Well, quite honestly, I'm not as big a household name as. I'm, yeah, I'm a very familiar face. Uh, people don't say, oh, there's Bert Quark. What they say is, isn't he the blog off the telly? <laughs> explosion of television meant that the world became smaller and because the world became smaller uh, there was room for much more international type of entertainment stuff 
So that's where I dived in. I, I, I just got lucky. I think it was more than luck, but actually, I think there was talent involved. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, like I said, uh, in in Shoes of the Fisherman, you know, there's a scene where he more than holds his own um, opposite Laurence Olivier and Anthony Quinn. Yeah. You know, it's it's a really it's a really powerful piece. Like I said having those those reassuring presences, um, which which in a way, um, you know, he was forging a path for you know for other actors. Yeah, other actors from maybe um, backgrounds that we didn't see enough of on TV. Also, it explains that there are there were plenty of people who could have been in more because they were just as qualified as anybody else. Mm. So now we have uh, some other episodes uh, to turn up. We have The Golden Frog. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, we've got... Um, we're, we're, I suppose we're on a little bit more familiar ground with The, um, with the Golden Frog. There's perhaps uh, certainly a whole lot less violence than than what we've seen in the in the previous one. It's more of a um, comedy episode, isn't it? So we yes. When we there's a there's a there's a there's a con there's a long con um, going on um, in in that. Um, and then, as you mentioned, kind of the frightened innkeeper uh, is is almost perhaps a revisit um, of the the inescapable word. You know, being similar kind of um, setup. Um, going on there and then tonight's episode which i can settle myself down for later on is uh, i'm not sure I'm, am i pronouncing this right is it sibau i think so yes um and that looks quite interesting and that is the reason why i revisited a danger man episode because then imdb claims that they're similar and as far as i can tell they're only similar in the respect that they mentioned voodoo or voodoo, oh, as right. apparently it's. So there is some reference to zombies and mines. Oh, oh, I'm, oh I'm, getting, I'm feeling all buzzy already. That's right. I mean, not only do you have Plague of the Zombies round about at the same time, set in a remote mining community in Cornwall. <laughs> in, in Cornwall. Um, but as he pointed out um, in... The Frightened Innkeeper, there was the possibility that Captain Mad Jack Hook might be doing the same kind of thing <laughs> down the corner of Tin Mines. Um, but there weren't any zombies. But I think one of the things is that uh, there was obviously a mine shaft set, and it may have been the same mine shaft set uh, both in uh, The Inescapable Word and in The Frightened Innkeeper, uh, that also appeared in The Everloving Brothers. Yeah, in the Australian Outback. The good thing is, you know, if you've got a um, a mine which uh, is is beneath a, a rural English pub, or one that is beneath the sun-baked Australian Outback, you don't have to do a lot of set changing for it or redressing. No, no, because unless you have snakes or giant ants or something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but even then, yes, the, it's a, a lot of polystyrene and plaster rocks, basically. Very dodgy pit props. Mm. So thank you very much for listening to 
roast into black and white television, the review show. We are still doing this. You know, they, they actually haven't paid the ransom, Dave, so we're going to have to carry on oh, doing it. Damn it. Um, damn it. Um, oh, I, I know what. Um, I had my um, our director chum, Eddie Marshall, stopping with me the other week. Yeah. While he was up here directing some Emmerdale, and I was really interested in this, so I will direct him. To, they're available on Soundstage North. Aren't they, Guy? Oh, yes, they're available on Soundstage North, on Soundstage North SoundCloud channel. Um, as opposed to my other slightly more academic, <laughs> I'd like to say, uh, podcast venture, which is going out on Acast, but also available on Apple Podcasts called History City. Um, oh, right, lovely. Which is about um, the history of York from the end of the Ice Age up to the present day and the vikings are just about to arrive oh, you know what it sounds like it sounds like you're doing like james a michener's centennial it sounds spreading that that huge breadth of um of age in 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 james a michener's book i think the first 90 pages there are no humans mentioned it's just about the geography the geology and the landscape it's an epic sweep of history um, it is. Anytime you pick up a book and it's got um, kind of genealogy charts in it, you know, cool, crikey, this is going to be a big read. Anyway, that's uh, that's the other thing that I'm doing. So I have to go and interview loads of people who know much more about it than I do. I am simply what? the conduit for their knowledge. <laughs> so great. We're recording this on Sunday, the 7th of May. Um, we will be recording again on Monday, the 8th of May, with bank a, holiday. an epic bumper bank holiday three episode review, including mm. Sabao. And we will be up to date at that point. And these mm. will be appearing on Tinternet shortly. So thank you for listening. Uh, listening to me, Guy Morgan, and my co host, David Newell. Thank you. And goodbye. We will return. Bye. Yeah.